Thank you very oh, much. Um, I'm probably one of the few economists here, uh, and you might ask yourself quite rightly what economists have got to contribute to the whole uh, topic of war and peace. Um, so let me tell you today a little bit about what Paul and I have been uh, doing for the last uh, 10 years. Um, so first of all, um, we started by studying war, not peace. So what type of war? Um, if you sort of look at how many wars there are, so this is just simply the number of wars, and then this is the end of the Second World War, and this is sort of more or less up to today. Um, the Uppsala uh, PREO data set gives you the numbers, and this very light-coloured one are colonial wars, so obviously they've sort of run out of um, fashion because they're no colonies any longer, and then their international wars are the dark ones, there are very, very few of those. And the overwhelming majority of large-scale violent conflicts, so we're looking at um, conflicts that cause a thousand battle-related deaths a year. These are military and civilian deaths. Um, so civil war is the um, most common form of uh, large-scale violent conflict. So if we're looking only at those civil wars, so again, I'm just looking at the numbers here, and then there were quite a few at the, uh, after the Second World War, and then it sort of built up um, and reached a peak in 92. And since the end of the Cold War, basically, the world has become a safer place in terms of large-scale violent internal conflict. And for those of you who are in particular interested in Africa, it sort of mirrors very much this sort of global development. So yes, the chance of the university is right. Uh, the world is now safer than, um, than it previously uh, was. So as an economist, I can sort of give you um, those sort of numbers and data handling sort of what um, um, I do day in, day out. So my research always centers on civil war. Um, and we're um, looking at what causes a civil war, why do civil wars break out, once they've broken out, what is their duration, and then what happens post-war. So let me just sort of talk you through those, um, those uh, dif different issues. So I'll start with the onset of civil war, and um, Paul and I have um, come up with a model of civil war which aims to sort of estimate which factors make a country more prone to civil war than others. And the method we're using is a global panel uh, study. So let me be quite clear about this because this is uh, important to me that you understand um, how we work. So we basically borrow a method from medical science. So for example, you can study what determines what makes a person prone to having a heart attack. So you can score all people. You can sort of say heart attack, yes, no. And then you can sort of see, uh, does this person uh, look at, uh, does this person smoke? Um, uh, what's their exercise regime? Um, what's their cholesterol? And then you can sort of calculate which factors are most important at determining the risk of a heart attack. And this is exactly the same what we did with countries. So we've got all countries and we sort of look at did a war break out, yes or no? And um, then what sort of um, um, characteristics does this, does this country have? 
So this um, was then, um, <coughs> it's really a string of papers, but in particular this um, greed and grievance in civil war um, <coughs> um, paper. So these explanations of civil war onset, so what sort of characteristics might make a country more conflict prone, we were sort of agnostic. We looked at economics um, as, as one way of explaining it, because for us the key in organizing and maintaining large-scale violent conflict is that you have to recruit and maintain a private army. Um, and you need money for this and finances. So we sort of thought it must have something to do with economics, but we also look at political science explanations. Um, do democratic countries have um, less of a uh, proneness to uh, large-scale uh, violent conflict sociology? So the dif difference between people in terms of religion or ethnicity or class, uh, does that make a um, difference in the probability of experiencing a war? History, if you've already had a civil war, does that make you more co conflict prone? Geography, um, if you're more mountainous, if your country is, um, population is dispersed in a particular way, maybe more concentrated or more dispersed, uh, does that matter? So we, we were pretty agnostic in sort of looking at um, what makes a country more conflict prone. If I give you a few conclusions from this onset model, um, we find very little evidence that um, the things that we can measure as grievances, so um, diversity in society, that that matters, religious or ethnic um, diversity matters. Income inequality also does not matter, um, uh, to, um, does not make a country more conflict prone, on average. Yeah? I'm stressing on average because we all know Uncle Joe who sort of turned 90 and smoked three packs a day and didn't have a heart attack. So there can always be a case you know, where this is different, but this is on average. Economic factors are very important. So it's the level, the growth and the structure of income that we found to be important. So first of all, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to have a civil war. Uh, so poverty really matters, and um, so that's a level of income. And if you've experienced a um, recent growth um, decline, then you're also um, more likely to have civil war. And these might have something to do with um, what we call opportunity costs, so um, you've got nothing to lose. You know, you might as well join uh, a rebel army um, because um, there's very little um, other um, employment, formal employment possible, and you can sort of gain from taking part in this, in this, in this um, civil war. It might also give you access to education, it might give you access to medical help. Um, there are all sorts of different reasons why um, people might want to join a um, um, civil war movement. So the structure of income, what I mean here is sort of in particular, we found that if your country is rich in natural resources, then you're very conflict prone. So one example, of course, are the blood diamonds uh, in uh, Sierra Leone and Angola, but there are other examples um, of um, timber in Liberia um, and um, think of the drugs in Afghanistan and Colombia, which have been financing those, those wars for, for a long time. Um, so 
these are very important, so these sort of um, sources of income are very important. What we also found was that if you have a large diaspora community, you're also more conflict prone because these diaspora communities, for example, the Tamils, but also the, the, the Kurds, I mean, a lot of uh, diaspora populations basically tax their population and send the money back home. And the hard currency actually, uh, uh, can buy you a lot of um, weapons. And in particular, of the case of the Tamil Tigers, that's very well documented. Um, and this is very intuitive. Um, the um, past conflict makes a country more conflict prone. Uh, so these are the cycles of violence um, <coughs> that we heard, f um, 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 heard about just now. Um, the good news is if you can maintain the peace for longer, the risk of a new civil war breaking out uh, declines. So if you can manage to sort of stabilize the peace for longer and longer and longer, the better are the chances that it will continue uh, to, uh, that the country will uh, remain peaceful. So this was all on the, on the onset of, um, of civil war, but what determines once the, w the war is broken out, how long it will last? So first of all, we found that all these sort of factors that I've just gone through are not very important in determining the, um, the length of the civil war. In fact, there are very few variables that we could really nail down as sort of explaining the duration of civil war. One thing that was quite important was natural resource prices. So if they, for example, go up, then the war continues for a little bit longer, uh, statistically speaking. That's all I wanted to say about the duration of war for the, for the moment because I, I do not only study war, but I do want to study peace as well. So um, from my point of view, there are two main post-conflict challenges. One is the economic recovery, and one is the risk reduction, um, of, um, risk reduction in, in the sense of really peace building. How do you maintain the peace? So I'm first going to talk about the economic recovery, and then I'm going to talk about um, the, the re reduction of risk. And of course, this, this is the development, and this is the security, and one cannot happen without the other. So Kofi Annan's um, sort of no security without development, no development without security is certainly right. But the instruments with which we obtain one or the other might not be the same, but these two are interdependent. So the economic recovery, um, we first of all ask ourselves, is there a peace dividend? After all, these countries are not spending all this much on, on killing each other any longer, and is there a sort of spontaneous recovery process? Is there a peace dividend? Um, and can the outside world help? Does aid increase the growth post-conflict? And does policy improve um, growth post-conflict? So if you're making reforms, these sort of windows of opportunity Simon was talking about, these sort of um, drivers of, of, of change in a post-conflict world, um, do they actually help growth? Um, 
and we were able to do an empirical analysis of post-conflict societies. There are not many studies of this ilk about, and um, as Simon already alluded to it, you are only really able to study this since the end of the Cold War because it was just too overlaid with all sorts of ideological problems uh, previously. So I'm always facing a data problem um, in the sense that I've, I can only look at relatively few post-conflict societies. I do find for the ones that I can study that there is uh, about 1% extra growth per year. And the good news is um, that you can, with aid, increase this extra growth. Um, interestingly, the timing is important here. It happens three to seven years um, after the end of the conflict, um, that aid can increase growth. But traditionally, this is not what donors have done. Just think what donors typically do. The, the conflict stops and there's been some sort of negotiated settlement, and they all try to come in with a lot of money. But the economy is really, really on its knees, so the absorptive capacity is just simply not there to sort of really use this aid in, in a growth-enhancing uh, way. Um, traditionally, donors have also gone out really quickly. So it's sort of like um, they've overwhelmed this country with a lot of aid and then the next disaster happens and they go into the next um, um, problem uh, uh, country. So our message has been quite clear. Go in slowly, build it up slowly. There is a div dividend that you can reap and increase. And um, if the peace is maintained for about 10 years, then this poor country is just like any other poor country and you can treat it um, like that as, as an aid donor, but you're really in there for the long haul. We're not talking two years here, we're talking ten years. Um, and that's been um, quite quite important suggestion to policymakers. And um, we sort of looked at, uh, we again were agnostic about it, what sort of policies are particularly important? Is it the type of monetary inflationary sort of policies that the post-conflict people from the IMF would advertise? Or is it structural policies, the World Bank, you know, you have to get your trade right? Or is it the UN sort of saying you have to um, um, really work on social inclusion? And um, the little bit of data I have for this is sort of um, um, tends to indicate that um, the growth process post-conflict is particularly sensitive to improvements in social policies. Um, probably no surprise to an audience like this. So this has been on economic recovery. So it's really important to sort of, because we know we reduce the risk of a new conflict breaking out when people have opportunities, when they have employment, um, when they have um, some sort of prosperity, or at least hope that it will get better um, when, when there's sort of growth and the sort of trickle through process. Okay, but can you actually sort of, can we actually say something about the reduction uh, of the risk um, through military expenditure. Um, let me just think for a minute. Um, the, the, the risk of having a renewed conflict is really high. You have about a 40% 
40% of all peace processes collapse within a decade. Um, and so my question, one of my questions would be, can you actually reduce um, um, this risk by spending more on the army? And Paul and I looked at this and we actually find that if the country increases military spending um, post-conflict, um, that it does exactly the opposite. It doesn't bring the risk down. So the idea, I deter the rebel movement, either the old one or, this or any new ones, by sort of increasing my military expenditure, that simply doesn't work. It's also really tragic that um, a lot of post-conflict governments do exactly that. They do increase their military expenditure. It's obvious to you that during the war, military expenditure goes up. But after the war has ended, it does not go back to the pre-war level. And these are extremely poor countries we're talking about, countries that have enormous needs in terms of health and education and infrastructure needs. Um, so this is really sad. And it does not um, deter um, um, new rebellions breaking out. So um, what about um, UN peacekeeping or coalitions of the willing? Um, do they actually help to prolong the peace? Um, so coalitions of the willing I have got no data on. But what I can look at and what, what we did look at were um, um, UN peacekeeping operations. So at the moment, um, there's very there are very few studies cross country on peace building efforts. Um, I've sort of tried to think a little bit through what typically happens in post conflict. Uh, practice and this is a sort of very rough sketch and people who do this um, in, in more detail might be unhappy with this but um, I sort of think there's some typically there's a negotiated settlement um, about half of all conflicts end with a negotiated settlement a quarter are won by the government outright and um, a quarter are won by rebels um, so negotiated settlements is the sort of most typical um, end to, to, to a war. Um, then there is very often a light presence of peacekeeping troops and there's some effort of pump priming democracy um, and the external actors maintain a light footprint. Then you have post-conflict elections and then you have democracy and you can withdraw everybody. Um, so this is sort of uh, my caricature of what seems to happen in a lot of post-conflict situations. So we studied this statistically. So we had these um, 68 post-conflict episodes, and as I said, 40% of all of these um, conflicts recurred within the decade. So it's a really Im important issue to sort of get this, um, get, get this right. So what did we find from statistical results? So what prolongs the peace? First of all, there is really no safe period um, in the first decade. It's not that once you've had two years of peace, you're in a much safer place, or once you've had four years of peace, you're in a much safer uh, place. You really, um, there's no, no such thing. You really have to sort of be in there for the, for, for the long haul. Keep in mind that the UN typically budgets for two years for um, 
uh, peacekeeping operations. Um, so this is certainly not enough. So um, growth is very important. So a stagnant economy has about a 42% risk of having another conflict. Um, but if you manage 10% income growth might seem very high to you, but places like Uganda have come uh, close to this, um, then you really substantially reduce the risk of, um, of um, having another conflict. So it goes from 40 to 27%. Elections. Elections are always really featured as incredibly important and unfortunately, I must say, very often also as a departure date for peacekeeping troops to withdraw. So what do elections do the post-conflict uh, risk? Nothing. Statistically speaking, nothing. Just before the election, the risk is slightly down, and after the elections, the risk is slightly up. But overall, there's no effect. Um, I haven't got that many subsequent elections, um, but they don't seem to have a different effect either of the few that I have. Peacekeeping really works. Um, if we double expenditure um, for, for a post-conflict country, this risk of 40% is reduced to 31%. Um, so let me just sort of come up with some sort of ideas on the post-conflict um, um, general, general ideas about the post-conflict challenges. They are very fragile. Um, we've heard that um, from Simon already, but um, you know the statistics are very clear on this. 40% is a high, um, high proportion of um, post-conflict um, peace efforts that um, collapse. Um, democracy and elections are obviously intrinsically desirable, but they don't give you peace. Um, so we have come to the conclusion that you really need a package of military and economic assistance. And you need this for a considerable period of time, um, um, 10 years. This is, this is what you know, international agencies should be looking at. Um, of course, um, our results are exclusively statistical. And you really have to apply this knowledge um, to the local um, sit situation. Um, and I think this is very often being misunderstood. So for example, we get military people who sort of come and sort of say to us, um, you've got these models where you can predict that the peace will break down or that a conflict breaks out. Um, can't you sort of just give us an estimate of this in this country? And I'm always sort of aghast, you know, that people want to use our model like this. Of course I can crank the data through this. But it isn't a particularly useful way of, it's not an early warning system. And, you know, with, through your foreign office and all your other sort of channels of information, you should be much better placed to sort of find out about these things than using a relatively crass and crude method of, um, of, of conflict prediction like the Collier-Heffler model. Um, so it's not very good about predicting the, the, the individual's country's risk. Yeah? For example, if you wanted to find about your heart attack risk, you don't go through this sort of big public health model 
because you know much more about this, much more detailed information you know. You know whether your brother has died of, of a heart attack, you know the family history, you know, you'd know an awful lot more things um, than this sort of big model could sort of ever look at. But for public health prescriptions, the model, the heart attack model that I sort of um, 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 laid out, it's very important because then you can sort of decide as a public policy maker how much money do I want to um, earmark towards um, reducing smoking and vis-a-vis uh, other, uh, -vis other health initiatives. And this is exactly how I think people have to sort of see the statistical efforts that we're pursuing. It does inform um, you know, agencies like the World Bank or DFID, who, who, whoever is interested in it, to sort of see, okay, is there a peace dividend on average, you know? Do we have to treat post-conflict countries differently? Because you might laugh about this, but until relatively recently, the World Bank did not make um, allowances for post-conflict countries. They were just treated like other um, uh, poor countries. Uh, and there were no... Um, special countries, um, country packages for, for, um, for them. So to my mind, um, these are going to be my concluding remarks on sort of security and development, um, is the problem of failing states. Everybody's got different names for these. Um, so some people call them uh, failing, some fragile, some call them low-income countries under stress, like us countries, that's the World Bank. Um, countries in difficult partnerships, but I think we all know sort of what it means. And if I just sort of come up with um, sort of very broad definition, these are countries that are not able to do, um, um, do basic things for their citizens. So for example, they are unable to provide security um, to, to their citizens. And they're not able to end or they're not able to provide public goods. What do I mean by that? So these are, um, th they're not able to provide a framework that enables people to lift themselves out of poverty. So these people who live in failing states are trapped in this cycle of poverty, um, underdevelopment, and insecurity. Um, and this is an awful lot of people because when you look at these sort of countries, and again, every agency, def agency defines them differently. Um, most development agencies never publish a list because, um, you know, um, Haiti and Angola are obviously in there, but what about um, Papua New Guinea? Is that in or out and so on? So they don't want to have those sort of public discussions about it and they don't want to have sort of blacklists of, of countries. Um, but about one billion people in this world live in these failing states. And I've done some sort of statistical analysis on these states and um, if we only look at the um, at the countries that are low income. So failing states in this definition sort of includes countries that are providing really bad policies like Belarus and, and a couple of other places, but they're actually not low income. So if you only look at the low income countries, then 7% of the world's population live in those. So that's the Haiti's and Angola's. 
Um, but 15% of the world's poor live in those countries. And over the last 15 years, they've had either zero growth or slightly negative growth rates. So they're stagnant. And think of what happened to the other uh, countries that have got a lot of poor people, like India and China, in the last 15 years. Zoom, yeah? They've zoomed ahead. So there's a sort of decoupling effect. It's a divergence effect in the, in the, in the global economy um, where people who live in the failing states, and in particular ones in the, in the, in the, very, in the low income ones, they're sort of lagging further and further behind. And if this trend continues, we estimate that about 30% of the world's poor are going to live in these countries. And so on the topic of building political will, it's just a humanitarian um, concern. You know, we, we, ca we cannot allow um, that um, these countries disconnect that much from the, um, from the, world's, um, from the rest of the world's development. So since we're economists, we've also put a, a sort of pri price tag on this. So we think that it costs um, the world about uh, um, 270 billion US dollars, sorry, I forgot the dollar sign there, per year. So these are the costs that are just generated by um, failing states. What are these costs, you might ask yourself? Well, sure, war uh, causes a lot of costs, so people get killed. But people don't only get killed, they also get, uh, you know, um, they have disabilities which affects their sort of future lives, um, you're losing um, income, um, but you're also um, causing poverty. So the cost of war and poverty in the country, um, that's already quite a large um, uh, cost. But these costs also spill over into the region. Think of all the refugees and all the problems they bring. The sort of um, typically, um, they just people just walk across the border. Um, so it's poor countries like um, Pakistan that have had to cope with millions of Afghani refugees uh, over the years. So um, the highest, um, the, the overwhelming part of the of these costs of state failure are to countries in the region. And I think that actually raises big and uncomfortable issues about the sovereignty of nations. So if their problems spill over into the region, and we didn't even try and attempt to look at the costs to the world through um, drugs, because they basically do come from very, very few places that are um, like Colombia and, and Afghanistan, where large parts of the country are not within um, um, where the state monopoly of violence is sort of broken down, and this is where the drugs are produced. You get um, human trafficking, you get huge migration, forced migration um, from, from those areas um, world, worldwide. And so you've got enormous sort of um, spillover cost. Um, and how does that compare to the assistance that the world is at the moment um, giving to countries? So. <coughs> Aid to these countries is about um, 80 billion US dollars at the moment per year. Um, and even if donor countries fulfill their UN target of giving 0.7% of their annual income um, to, um, to development aid, 
then, and at the moment, this is only a few countries that actually do this, like Norway and um, <coughs> Sweden and the Netherlands. Uh, Canada is sort of quite close to that. Um, but anyhow, if, if every donor country did this, then we, had, uh, then we would have 130 billion US dollars a year. So it's nowhere near you know, the sort of cost, just as a comparison, what state failure costs um, the world. Um, so we really have to tackle this issue because unless we break this cycle of, uh, of development um, and, uh, and well, underdevelopment and um, uh, large-scale violent conflict, these countries are going to fall further and further behind. And I'll stop there. Thank you.